welcome to Coaches Chatters. Um, we've had a lot of guests so far. Uh, this week uh, we've got Jack Bridge. Um, he's a Paralympic swimmer, um, and it'll be interesting to see his his journey as a as a sporting athlete and and the role that a coach has played in his in his success. So, welcome uh, to the show, Jack. Uh, hope you're good. Um, just starting Thanks, off, have me, Josh. Yeah. Just starting off. Um, what is your sporting journey? Um, so. My sporting journey starts all the way back from uh, when I was a baby. So um, if anybody knows my story, they know uh, that I suffer from a blood condition called severe haemophilia A. So basically all that is, is that there's lots of different proteins in your blood and I'm missing the protein that helps my, my blood internally clot. Um, now that stops me from doing sports like rugby, like boxing or you know hockey, stuff like that. Um, so we tried as you know, as a family to try and find a sport that I could really get behind. Um, and I was really keen into my football. I was really keen into my cricket. Uh, and I played, played that, both those sports, you know, at a pretty decent level. I had trials for Preston North End, my local football team. Uh, I was just below county level uh, when I played cricket. I've had cousins who, who've gone on to play for uh, England at test level. Um, but the sport that really kind of captured my imagination, uh, especially in the lead up to, to London 2012, uh, was swimming. So swimming for me was a sport where it kind of allowed me to live a pretty normal life. It's a sport where there's no impact on any of your joints. It can help you build muscle around uh, some painful joints because as a side effect of haemophilia is it, if you have a bleed into your joints, they become really weak really rather quickly. And swimming was a way to kind of bypass uh, all of the problems that you'd get from having impact from either running or being hit or tackled or anything like that. Um, and it was really a, a more of a life skill than anything else as well. Um, so I started learning to swim when I was four uh, and just really progressed through the ranks. I, I started competing against other able-bodied athletes at the age of uh, nine. Um, but I, I was always acutely aware that the swimmers I was swimming against at that point in time in my life were people who uh, were fully able-bodied. Now, haemophilia left me with uh, impairments in my left elbow, my left knee, my right ankle. Um, and I was at a massive disadvantage in terms of um, being, you know, just standing next to someone being more streamlined than me. And that has a massive impact when, when we get into the swimming pool. Um, and it wasn't until 2009, 2010, where um, I was at that point in my swimming career where I just wasn't sure if it was for me anymore. And... I was at a competition in Salford and one of the uh, referees said, you should try and get Jack classified as a para swimmer um, because he's swimming against other you know, able-bodied athletes uh, and he's doing quite well, but he's never going to get any further than where he's at at the minute. So we went down to Sheffield to get classified in the November of 2009. Um, and I entered 11 events on that weekend, came away with 11 medals. Uh, and little did I know I was on the road to London 2012. Um, I managed to break my first British record in 2011. I qualified for my first GB team in 2011 for the European Championships. I managed to medal there in the 4 by one medley relay team, brought back a bronze medal, uh, then smashed my British record again the year after in, in, the, 100, in the 100 metres breaststroke um, and qualified for the London team, which was amazing, such an amazing experience. Uh, I just got pipped to a medal, so I finished fourth in the final 100 metres breaststroke. But I had an amazing experience and memories created there will be ones that stay with me forever. Uh, and then 
a difficult part in my, in my sporting career came when in 2013, uh, six weeks before the World Championships, I had a major uh, injury in my left knee. I was in hospital for a week. Um, my, my knee was the size of a, like a small football, like a size three football, uh, just totally filled with blood. And I probably at that point in time, I probably shouldn't have gone to the World Championships. I should, probably should have just withdrew. Um, but I managed to go and I finished seventh in the final, which was, it was a pretty decent effort, but I was nowhere near my personal best. And then I went off to university uh, to rejoin my coach who'd taken me to London. Uh, and she was up in Newcastle. I managed to qualify for the European team that year. Again, I was miles off the pace. Uh, I'd had a chicken pox 10 days before the championship was due to start. I managed to come away with a silver medal from those championships, but I probably should have come back with a lot more. And that was the last time I actually made a GB team. Uh, I went away, had surgery on my right ankle, and then came back for the Paralympic year of 2016. Um, and ended up missing that team by less than half a second, which was absolutely awful. Like, it was horrific. I suffered really bad mental health issues after that. Um, had a bit of a spiral in terms of my body was in so much pain and uh, I wasn't getting m much support from um, my coach at the time. Uh, and then I just I had a bit of a break, about an 18-month break from swimming. Um, and uh, uh, I then came back to... I was back into the Newcastle squad where... I decided that I wanted to have one last push whilst I still could while I was at university uh, and went to swim at the national championships in 2018 in December uh, and came away with a silver medal. At, you know, it was my first international competition in nearly three years and, and came just over three years and uh, I came away with, with a bronze medal. So, uh, sorry, a silver medal. And, you know, I was quite, I'm quite happy and quite satisfied with how my swimming career went. There's bits and bobs that I probably would have changed and decisions that, I maybe would have taken a different route, but I have no regrets with, the, with where my sporting journey's gone. Mm. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer to, <laughs> to your question. No, that's it's, it's great to hear, you know, the different dynamics of, of how um, athletes, you know, get into um, their sort of final career. You know, you, you touched on about um, uh, football and cricket was one of your sort of sports that you really love to get into. Um, touching on your condition as well, would you kind of say there was kind of that, that risk and that like, awareness of if I go into this, I could be quite dangerous. Whereas as swimming, you know, being in the pool, it's, it's great for your muscles. You know, it's really good for rehab work with rehabilitation. Would you say it was great finding swimming as your main sport just for that risk element? Well, yeah, it, it wasn't my main sport up until I was about 15 until 2009, 2010, because, you know, cricket and football were just more enjoyable for me because it's more of a, like a team effort, a team, team ethos. And, um, it was just more of a social thing than anything else, especially with my cricket. And um, but but what swimming did, and I swam all the way through. Swimming gave me the opportunity to go and do those sports. Without swimming, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So I couldn't do those independently. Um, and that's something now. So I'm a big advocate for people with uh, hemophilia and, and other rare diseases as well. And that's one of my big like conversation points, especially with people suffering from the same rare disease that I do. Um, that it's so important for them to get out and be active and I think for me I just try and get them into swimming because it's, it's the best sport that you know someone with hemophilia can do and it allows them to do other things as well that maybe perhaps before they, they wouldn't been able to do so um, yeah swimming's great swimming's also brought me a lot of you know so you, you say it's great for rehabilitation but some of the so I was a breaststroke and that's really bad for your knees and my left knee just gives me jip all the time 
Um, but again, I use something to kind of rehab it to an, you know, to a place where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much pain free apart from when it's really cold and, uh, in the winter and, and I walk too much on it. Mm. And, um, you, you spoke a lot about your, you know, your different successes in, um, in sport, you know, the, the large amount of medal that you've, you've won. Um, what would you say that your largest and best achievement is, um, within that journey? It's got to be London, hasn't it? So uh it's almost like a a once in a lifetime thing the the funny thing is that i'm, I'm not superstitious but i do have a, a lucky number and that's number 12 and that's just a, a number that's kind of followed me all the way around my life so it was, it was my um my number when i played football on the back of my shirt uh it was the 12th of april that i qualified for the london team it was london 2012 it was just all the 12s i don't they just seem to just line up for me and London 2012 was a magnificent achievement. And I don't know if anybody's seen the, there's a Netflix series called is it Icarus, um, where they talk about the um, Russian doping scandal. Uh, and I'm, I'll be forever convinced that the person that won my race at London was part of that Russian doping scandal. Mm. Uh, I, I suppose we'll never find out now, um, but in my head, you know, I, I finished third in a race Sorry, I finished fourth in a race where, I, you know, if, if we were testing kind of legal athletes, I would have finished third. So that was that was a, a big gripe that, that I was I struggled to deal with for a long time. But it was all about accepting it. It happened and that's the way it was. Um, but that, there's still that London opportunity, that the chance to go and swim in front of 17 and a half thousand people with millions of people watching at home, uh, at a home Paralympic Games, which is never going to happen in my lifetime again. Uh, and just to, it's almost as if the stars aligned for me to be there at that point in time. And I'll be forever grateful for that opportunity because, um, you know, it's helped me to do a lot of the things, excuse me, that I'm doing today, such as inspire other people. You know, I spent the last year of my university studies going around the Northwest and the Northeast of England, uh, inspiring children um, to take sport up and to inspire them to do something better with their lives, not necessarily in sport, but just to improve their lives. And uh, that was something that I really got a lot out of personally. I think, um, you know, we, it was always the key aspect and the key message that came out of the London Games was to inspire the next generation. And to still be doing that, you know, almost 10 years later on is, um, yeah, is an absolute privilege. Mm. And I think um, a lot of people who took part in the London Olympics really saw that um, that sort of growth of of sport after um, 2012 and even continuing now, as you're saying. Um, you spoke uh, in your journey, you spoke about a time where um, you were uh, swimming against able athletes and how, you know, you, you kind of thought, oh, it's swimming for you. What what drove you um, to success, you know, trying to get past those moments of, you know, I can do this and, and get to, uh, to where you went to? Uh, I think it was, one, it was accepting that I was different for, for, for a long time. I used to, I used to look in the mirror and see like parts of my body that didn't look like the other side of my body. Um, like for example, like just look at the bulk in both my arms, my left side is considerably smaller than my right side. But I always kind of just boxed it away. And when that referee had that conversation with my parents to say, look, you should try and get him classified it was almost a moment of kind of accepting that I was different and that it you know it wasn't it wasn't on a level playing field that I was competing you know against these other able-bodied athletes so 
when that kind of kicked in, I, I didn't I didn't know that I was going to make the London 2012 Paralympic Games then, but I said to myself once I'd got classified, I'd won all those medals, won all won all those medals at that weekend in November. I, I said to myself, I need to give myself every single opportunity um, to make sure, to, you know, to make that team. So it was sacrificing weekends to either sleep or catch up on schoolwork that I'd missed on um, during the week. It'd be the early morning, so half past four in the morning. It'd be the late nights, not getting home from Manchester till 10 o'clock. It'd be sacrificing weekends to go away on training camps. It'll be sacrificing two weeks of work to go away on training camps. It was doing exams abroad. It was sacrificing pretty much my whole social life for that one goal of making the team. Um, and there's nothing like a drive for a home championships or a home, and, and especially a home Paralympic Games. Like it, this is the chance for Great Britain to showcase their sporting ability. And I'm very patriotic, you know, I'm very queen and country. And I just felt it was like I was doing my duty for, for you know, for, for the queen and the country. Um, and that's what drove me to be as successful as I was. And I enjoyed the really good, good parts and in terms of breaking records and PBing and seeing progression. And that's when I think the, the coach, the coaches that I had that I was I had when I was in my peak and my prime and I was at my most happiest was they were just kind of reinforcing those positive messages all the time. Whereas when I moved over to, to different coaches or they had a different frame, you know, different mentality towards how they treated their athletes, it was a case of I was always competing against other people or. Whereas when I performed best, it was I was always competing against myself. And I was competing against the clock, and that's all that really mattered for for when I was when I was really really happy and I was at my peak of my performance. Yeah, and um, you spoke as well in, in your journey how um, about the, the mental health side of it. Um, Isaac, yep. our, our, the last person on the guest, a Paralympic badminton player, um, spoke about how as an as an individual sport, it's good to have that relationship with a coach. Um, just speaking of the role of a coach. Would you say that um, in an individual sport like swimming, it's good to have that you know one-to-one relationship to be able to have that conversation if there's issues around mental health? It's difficult because when you're an elite athlete, you have so many different facets and so many different strings to your bow. You have a coach for your strength and conditioning work. You have your obviously your swimming coach. You have a lifestyle person you go to. You have a nutritionist. You have obviously your mom, your mom and dad's, your support network. I also had my nurses, my doctors, and part of my medical team. Um, my physio as well. And as an athlete, you have to be an expert in managing all those different relationships. And with some coaches, they accept that that's the way it is, and that's the best way to get the most out of your performance. But some swim coaches. And I suppose this is the same in, in, a, in a multitude of different sports as well. They see their self as kind of like that project manager. And it's not, it's not that, it, for me, coaching needs to be a two-way conversation, especially if you've had experience of knowing what works for you. And yes, it's important to have those conversations, but if you need, so from my point of view, you go to the swimming pool to work with your swim coach on the swimming side of your, um, you know, your, your performance. Yes, it's probably the most important in terms of technical and getting the small details right. 
but there's so much else that goes on away from the swimming pool that the swimming coach doesn't really have an impact on. So for me, I, I found it really hard that when someone tried to take total control of my swimming performance, because I've always been used to spreading that out and just being that person in the middle of the, um, it's almost like, um, you know, when you brainstorm, you write an idea in the middle and then you have different facets off either side you're that person in the middle that controls all those different relationships. And when that kind of control was taken away from me, I, it's not that I became disengaged. I just wasn't very happy about it. Um, and for me, I, I always had someone to talk to about my mental health was, you know, a psychologist or a therapist or something like that. Uh, and it was their job to kind of get me into a frame of mind where when I went to the swimming pool, I wasn't worried about anything. I'd just go to the swimming pool to go to work. Like I go to, the gym to go and do the work that I need to get done that day. Um, yes, it's important to have a conversation to keep everyone in the loop of what's going on. And sometimes that can be quite difficult, um, but it's not the sport coach's job to do that. It's their job to listen, to have that 50-50 relationship to say, okay, what works for you? This is what I think. And this is kind of, it's their job to do, to put the, the, the swim part of your performance in place and, and provide that plan for what you do in the water. Um, and yeah, it's just a case of having that communication with all your different facets, all the different strings to your bow to make sure that when you step up on the block at the trials or at the major championships, that you've got everything right in terms of your mental preparation, your technical preparation, your strength preparation. So, you know, when you dive in, you perform at your best. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, I was just about to ask then how, you know, with all these different like um, people involved, did you ever feel like, you have to try and balance out, you know, meeting the strength and conditioning coach one day, the nutrition coach, you know, you, you guy in the gym, the psychologist, was it hard to kind of keep a balance of all this all at one time? Uh, it, it, it was, yeah. And I'm talking about the, the post London times where I, I just, I really struggled um, because after 2014, I, I was dropped from funding from UK sport. And then you have to try and find other ways of providing that, support and I was lucky I was at university and I was on a full scholarship there and had all that support there but the swim program wasn't right and I'd made I made a decision to move swim programs to go over to another program where it was completely different and it what it they were they had a high performance facility um but the ethos and the, the the club ethos wasn't very high performance in terms of the way they managed their athletes it was very kind of age group youth level swimming where I was at a point where I was an international swimmer. I'd been to a Paralympic Games. I'd, I'd known the processes that got me there. And when those conversations were shut down, it was almost a case of, I got really frustrated with where I was at. Um, and that's when it became difficult because I'd want to go and do something which I knew worked. But if that caused chaos in terms of what the swim coach thought, then it'd just be a bit frictional. And because I saw that person 10 times a week, it just wasn't worth it. Mm. So I'd end up other bits of my performance would then just drop off. Um, like I still wanted to go and do all my strength and conditioning away from the rest of the group because I was happy with my strength and conditioning coach over in Newcastle. And I was yeah. based over at Sunderland where they did all theirs. And that was fine. Like, but my support network was great at uni because I had my physio there. I had my strength conditioning coach. And they used to work quite closely with helping out with any like niggles I had. Um, but that just wasn't kind of, reciprocated from the swim side of things and that's probably one of the decisions where I'd wish I'd have gone somewhere or stuck somewhere else yeah does that make sense yeah 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 um 
and looking at maybe not necessarily the the poor side of coaching, but would you say that there's you've had experience where there's been a decline? You know, you spoke spoke about an incident there where you don't want the friction with a coach. Have you ever had a time where there's sort of a coach where you think, well, he's not really improving me? Yeah, yeah. So that happened after London. Uh, I decided to leave my university squad, who were great, but university sport is a lot different from high performance sport in terms of there's an acceptance to go out and you know have socials and get drunk on a Wednesday night or whatever. Uh, and if you're a high performance athlete, you can't, you just, you just can't allow yourself to do that. Uh, I had a year of doing that in 2013 uh, when I first went to uni because you only go to university once, right? Yeah. Um, so I did that. I still trained really, really hard, but I knew my performance. I knew I had a dip in my performance. So then decided to change programs and went over to Sunderland and I, initially it was great I felt like I was part of a big team that were all striving to do stuff together there was there started to be a a breakaway squad of older athletes who were the high performance squad uh, I had two of my friends who made the Paralympic team at Rio in that squad um, and it was great we went on really small training camps and it was a group of three of us who got like one-to-one time with the uh, with the coach and initially it was great like we, we used to train away from the rest of the other group and do, you know, it, that. It, but then, I don't know, at, at some point it just kind of all changed and he brought more people into the group who the rest of us didn't perceive as high-performance athletes. The kind of quality and the intensity that also dropped um, and the engagement from the coach in terms of that one-to-one support, that technical support that you need at high-performance levels, because it's all about the small margins. It's all about those marginal gains. I know that's a word that gets banded about a lot in high-performance sport, but it's that, that's what's needed at that level. Uh, that just kind of disappeared. And I don't know why that, that disappeared. I think they were getting some monetary support from another educational institute, which for me is not a reason to change what we were already doing because it, it was working. Yes, I, I, I had a little niggle in my knee before trial, so I couldn't go. And that's when I decided to, to go away and have some ankle surgery. Um, but it was working, what we were doing, and it, all, it just all changed. And from then on, uh, I, met, I was made to feel different. I was made to feel like a person with disabilities. I was made to feel small and insignificant, even though I was putting in times which put me in top five in the world. I got kicked out of the high-performance squad and made to train with 13-year-olds. Uh, and that's when my mental health really started to take a, a massive dip because I just felt worthless. And uh, I was taking pain medication to deal with my physical pain. And then also, my, you know, the mental kind of pain that I was receiving from just being ignored. You know, I was, I was still producing you know, world-class times. And uh, because I didn't PB at a certain event, I think I'd missed my PB by like 0.2 of a second. I was, yeah, I was just kicked out of the squad and made to feel like I was nothing. And that's when I just... That, that's when I realized that swimming wasn't worth my mental health mm. and that it it hadn't become, or it had become, um, or, or I'd lost the love of the sport and it had been, it just been taken away from me. I wasn't turning up to the pool in the morning, happy and excited to get my work done. It was a case of, I was just turning up to make sure I wasn't getting a nasty text at night time to say, where were you? Or thanks for the update. Cause that's, you know, that's all the communication we used to get. So it was, it just wasn't very nice. Mm. Um, and I know similar athletes, another one of my para friends had had a similar experience and he almost committed suicide because of it. Um, 
so yeah, so it, it's, it's crazy how much you trust one person to, to put together a plan for you to perform uh, and their attitude and their, the ways they coach you can have such a massive effect. And obviously at that point in my time, it wasn't a very positive one. Yeah. And um, I was going to ask a question, but you've kind of just sort of summed it up there about being overlooked, uh, you know, Paralympic sport. And it's still quite new in some cases. And some people, you know, some people will think, oh, it's brilliant. Um, me, for example, I, I would try and include as much as possible other people to try and push to the side. Do you feel like there's still a continuous thing in sport where people, you know, see para, uh, para athletes and think, you know what, we're not going to focus on them. We're just going to focus on what would they classify as more major athletes? Do you think that's still a continuous thing, as you just said in that? In that yeah. story? It, to be fair, it comes down to money mm. and commercial opportunities because that's what drives Olympic and Paralympic sport. Yes, the Olympic partners kind of like to align themselves with Paralympic sport because it looks good in terms of their, you know, corporate social responsibility stuff, the CSR. Um, but when it comes to the three years in between each of the games, uh, it's very difficult to find partners that align themselves with Paralympic sport. And that's because no one really watches it. It's not, it's not Usain Bolt. It's not the fastest man alive. You're watching it because you think, oh, these stories are great. But that's where it comes around, where I think in Olympic sport, all the athletes' journeys are fairly similar. Parents are pretty affluent. They've had amazing opportunities. They've had amazing coaches. They've had the financial backing to go and do stuff, um, especially in something that's a really expensive sport. Uh, but when you come to para-sport, it's totally different. It's a case of every single athlete has had to, had to overcome something to get to where they are. At some adverse event, some adverse injury, some adverse condition, which has meant that they can't lead a normal life. And they've had to overcome so many different things to get where they are today. And that's what's so inspirational. And um, the IPC are starting to cotton on that those inspirational stories are something that people want to watch. Um, so on Netflix, there was uh, a series, uh, I think it's called Phoenix or something like that. And it was based on like five or six different para-athletes telling their story and it, it did amazingly. And that's something that I hope they continue to do because every single para-athlete's journey is different and exciting and to watch them go to the games and, and perform. They're not just people with impairment to, a, you know, sort of average to, to to actually do their sport they train hard they train really hard if not harder than their olympic count counterparts because they have so many different issues to deal with just to even get to the swimming pool mm. um so yeah para sport is an elite sport and no one's going to change their mind don't feel sorry for the athletes because that's the last thing they want they want you just to, to see them in the same light as they as the uc your olympic stars they train their absolute asses off to make sure that they're, they're in the peak condition for when the Paralympic Games comes around, for when the major championships comes around. They are, in my eyes, and always will be elite athletes. And I just hope that the IPC, uh, and especially here, the British Paralympic Association, I hope they start to see that um, those stories are, are starting to come out and starting to see, you know, people like Lauren Stedman, um, who, who were on Strictly Come Dancing a couple of years ago, that's really helping move the, the Paralympic movement because people are seeing that Yes, they've got impairments, but they can still do exactly the same stuff that, that some of the Olympic um, athletes can do as well. Yeah, and um, Isaac, on the on the last podcast, he was on about how um, he's had so many tournaments. He, he's um, got um, dwarfism, and he said that so many people will say you know stuff to him. And um, I've I've got another Paralympics with me, uh, Stephanie Slater on the show, 
um, in the next podcast yeah. we'll see how she thinks but it is um, if you think about I'm a celebrity of, of this year um, they had Holly on there who had an impairment um, who was missing yeah. an arm um, would you say it's like it's so much more influential seeing that on the TV and thinking like because I remember watching it and so many people on Twitter were like why is she on the show like like she's not going to be able to do anything and, I, and me I felt so like inspired watching that like seeing how far she can get on do you think that is something that needs to be on TV more needs to be sort of advertised and um, that you know the, the, like you said the ability is massive um, and you know, how much they train and for me what absolutely you, uh, it, sorry, yeah absolutely and Libby Clegg, Libby Clegg was on Dancing on Ice. Uh, like I said, Lawrence Deadman was on, uh, who's a good friend, um, was on Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, you know, the, the, this, the, the general public is starting to cotton on to some of the amazing things that Paralathletes are doing and their personalities. Johnny Peacock was on Strictly Come Dancing as well. Um, it, it's great. And long may it continue, to be honest, because if, you know, all these kind of big, TV hits. So even if you know stuff like Love Island, and you know that can only help like raise awareness of Paralympic sport. Um, it, I, for me, to see a Paralympic athlete on Love Island would be like next. That would change the game for me. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, I know I'm a celebrity. I know I'm a celebrity gets massive views, and I know um, Strictly Come Dancing gets massive views. Same with Dancing on Ice. But if, if it was something on like Love Island where it, it hits a different generation of people. Uh, in terms of more of our age of, of kind of people mm. and the population, I think that would do an amazing thing for Paralympic sport because it's really, you know, some, someone to get behind in terms of um, people will want to watch how they do in their sport later on the line. Like you see, you, I, don't, I don't know if you know Tom, Tommy Fury, who's um, Tyson Fury's younger brother. Yeah. No one in the boxing world had kind of heard of Tommy. I say, I say no one. The casual boxing fans would have never have heard of Tommy Fury before he he went on Love Island, and when he came out, he had a load more um, a load more casual fans because of the PR stuff that he did on Love Island. If that can happen to a Paralympic athlete, I think it's amazing. Not just for them as an individual, um, but them as or Paralympic sport as as a, as a whole movement. Yeah, and if you think about Love Island, you know the amount of people that go on Love Island, even the ones that get kicked off in the first in the first couple um, in the first couple of weeks or so, the amount of press and the amount of sort of followers that they gain is massive. Yep. For, a, for, yep. a, for a Paralympian to be on there for a good deal of time, you know, you talk about the financial side of it, the amount of money that they could try and invest in by just a bit of yeah, money. and then they can put that back into the sport. Yeah, and speaking about the financial side of it, what do you think the best way is for? You know, you have these schemes of uh, Sport England and, and UK Sport and stuff, but what is the best way to try and get money into, you know, the Paralympic Games? Oh, in terms of commercial money or in terms of, like, sponsorship, like, personally? In terms of, well, it's a bit of both, a bit of commercial. Obviously, Channel 4 have recently um, brought over sort of the promotion of, of um, putting it on TV and stuff, but how do you think um, sort of, like, getting money into it? There's a lot of money into just, like, grassroots football at the moment, for example. Um, how do you think that money can get, you know, increased into Paralympic sport and para athletes? It's difficult. It, it, it's, it's the same conversation that's in women's football. People are saying that women's footballers need to be paid the same as um, men's football. Uh, um, but I'm a sport management student, and we did the research, and the amount of viewership that the Premier League gets on Sky Sports, BT, and the BBC is just so 
ridiculously more for men's sport than it is for women women's sorry for, for men's football than it is for women's sport and that's the reason why there's a pay disparity it's just not commercially viable to pump millions and millions of pounds into uh, women's football when they're not getting anywhere near the sort of advertising and the commercial return and it's the same for para athletes it's the same deal if you think about the olympics started hundreds of years ago Paralympic movement's been going since 1964. Same with women's football. It's only really kicked off in the last 10 years. Mm. Men's football's been going since the late 1800s. Um, it needs time. It just needs time to grow, to keep doing what it's doing, to make sure that they're doing the right things commercially in terms of you know providing the right amount of rights and sponsorships um, for the right event at the right time on the right TV stations. Um, for it to become more commercially viable and it will grow. It just needs time. And yeah. that's the same with women's football. It just needs time to grow. And when it gets to a point where, um, and that's not to say that men's football and the Olympic sport won't continue to grow because they will. I'm not saying that they'll ever be the same because if I'm honest, I don't think they will ever be. Um, but in terms of growing money, the, the budget from the, the Department of Cult Media, Culture and Sport, DCMS and UK Sport is going up every kind of, cycle because athletes in in para sports are doing better and therefore deserve the increased amount of funding um it, yeah like i said just needs time to grow and uh i believe it i'm a strong believer in, in strong economic policy in, in terms of sport there's no point just pumping millions and millions of pounds into sport um that's not going to bring any returns in terms of medals and uh stuff like that but on a personal on a personal individual sponsorship level it's a case of well I did my dissertation on individual sponsorship in para sport, and I think UK sport can do more to help support the individual athletes. I think they can put together uh, like a sponsorship toolkit for athletes to go to commercial partners and say, look, this is what I'm offering. I can do this, this and this. Um, can you help support in any way, whether it's kit, whether it's financial, whether it's, um, you know, just getting their name out there on social media to try and build their, their image. It, I think UK, that's one area where UK sport can help support para athletes a lot more because it's really hard to kind of go into a local business and say, look, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm doing. Um, are you willing to help me out? Mm. And I think it is that sort of, you know, that 20, um, that 20 years step of looking like within 20, 20 plus years, what, what, where do we want to go with Paralympic sport and stuff like that? Um, and I think it is so hard to to get it out there. Um, Cause if, if you look at like household names, like, like Jessica Ennis Hill and stuff like that uh, on the London Olympics, you know, many people wouldn't be able to, to name anyone from the Paralympics over there. Maybe like Oscar Pistorius, who was quite big at the time, but obviously he, he's got different news stories. So it is quite hard to get out there. How would you say the best way is to put over parallel athletes and um, sort of to get out there and, and get well known? Don't worry about it. Mm. work hard let your success do your talking for you that's it there's there's no kind of easy way to say there's no don't go to like an agency or whatever um just let your success do the talking because without the the the, the sporting success you're not going to have a, a story to tell anyway yeah. so it's you just need to just continue to work hard and let other people worry about your image and um yeah uh, yeah there's no there's there's no easy answer to that. I just think it's a case of just let the hard work and, and your success do the talking for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and lastly, just finish, um, just to finish on coaching. Who has, or what would you say, a, a dream coach has been in your in your career? The coach that told me to London 2012 uh, was amazing. She's called Louise. She's the um, head of aquatics at Northumbria University at the minute. Um, and she and uh, and I had an amazing relationship. We would fight. We would get over it. Uh, but we're both on the same train of thought, same track um, to realizing how good I could have been or I, I could be. And she was the first one to G me up in the morning. She was the last one there to sit with me during my cool downs. We would talk on journeys to competitions about stuff other than swimming. She knew when to talk about swimming. She knew when not to talk about swimming. She knew when to let me have time off. When, to, But that, that took time to develop that relationship um, <clears throat> and to share that time uh, that we had in London together because she was selected as a coach on that team. Uh, was just an absolute privilege to have her in my corner all the way through that preparation. So we had a three-week holding camp. We had two weeks at the games. Um, and I had a massive knee bleed like three days before my 100 breaststroke. And she just took all the stress stress and agony away from me and, and just got all the medical side of stuff sorted. And then let me rest for a day. And then we got back in the pool, just did some stuff. And I ended up still breaking my British record by like almost three seconds. So it's a coach that we were almost telepathic in the ways that we worked. And um, for me, it just takes time. It took us like six months to get to on that level with each other, which is quite fast in my opinion. Uh, and I'll ever forever be grateful for the time and the effort that she put into my swimming career. And um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just been a big privilege to have her as a, as a, co- as a coach in my corner. Mm. And it, it, that listening to that, it just sounds like it's just like your best mate there. It, like listening for Maris. Yes, we were. Yeah, like, best mate. Was your best mate who who just said to you, you yeah. know, calm down. We need to calm down. And if you want to train hard, then I'll do that for you. Yeah. And when I when I came back for that last little stint in 2018, um, she obviously she was a coach at university, and she I told her my story, and she understood everything that I'd been through. And when we started to work together again properly, it was like we'd never been apart. And you know, days where I wasn't feeling it, she'd say, "Yeah, just." go go home or go to the library go do some work whatever i come back and we'll, we'll do the session later on you know she was there in my gym sessions um and yeah it was it was just great to have her in my corner and uh, and she she helped me fall back in love with swimming again um and she, you know she uh, for, you know be forever grateful that she was there Mm. And it just it's just one of them coaching stories where you just want to listen to it over and over again because it's a great example of how a coach really can have an influence on on an athlete. So, um, and all co- all coaches have an influence, positive or negative. They always have an influence, but just it's on the coaches. It's on the well, I suppose it's fifty fifty. It's it's got to be a fifty fifty partnership, and if that sways any more, then it's it's not a it's not a coaching uh, a coach athlete relationship that's that's going to be successful. It needs to be fifty fifty in order to be successful at a high performance level. Yeah. And um, like you just said there, the coach is a massive influence. You know, if the coach isn't pushing, then the, the participant isn't pushing. Um, and it's definitely a, a two-way thing. Um, that's that's everything that we've really um, got for, Jack. Uh, it's been great having you on the show. Um, it's, you know, it's a great conversation to have, um, talking about your view, but also the financial side of it. Um, it it's just, it's great. Um, for those listening on Spotify, um, you can listen also on YouTube and um, Google Podcast. Um, but lastly, yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show, Jack. It's been great having you on. 
Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Very much. Stay safe, mate. You too.